0: Our second reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. The, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breast piece. And let them make me a sanctuary, That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. The Word of the Lord.
1: When I was in the fifth grade, I walked in one day to class, and my teacher, a teacher that I loved at the time, Miss Matheson, gave us all a pop quiz. Um, It was one of these pop quizzes that had something to do with instructions. She said, you know, follow the instructions, go through this whole thing, and this is a timed quiz. So we didn't know what it was on. We sat down, we had our pencils ready to go, and I was ready. I was ready to win in the battle of the pop quiz. Now, I was in a class of kids that had some really smart kids in it, and I knew that I could not win the battle of the actual grade. That was going to be Ingrid Nelson or Karen Mims. They were gonna have the highest grade, I was not gonna be able to beat them, but I might finish the quiz faster than them, which proved I was better in some way, right? So the goal was really to get it done faster than everybody else in the class. Just pencil down or up on the teacher's desk, whatever it is that they asked. But I also had competition, Corey Williams and Charles Stinger. They were always very fast as well. We all knew we could not beat Karen and Ingrid, but we could beat each other at who could get it up on the desk fastest. So the quiz comes down upside down on our desks. I had my pencil ready. Pulled it out, flipped it over, started reading. It was 26 questions. Question number one, read all the instructions before you go to question two. Question number two, fill out your name, name. Question number three, make four squares underneath the top of your name, four squares. Question number five, Get out a sheet of loose leaf paper and line it every other line for seven lines. Okay, did that, just right through the whole thing. I was beating everybody, I could tell, because I sort of was glancing left and right, right? And I get down to question number 26, and it says, ignore questions one through 25. You don't need to do anything. This is a pretend quiz. All you needed to do was read the instructions. Okay, so I finished, and I beat Corey and Charles, But Ingrid and Karen had been sitting there the whole time. They had actually read the instructions. This was a trick quiz to get you to read directions and follow them. The first question was, or first question said, read all the instructions before you carry on. I read question number one and read question number two and started doing it. If I had read through the whole thing, I would have gotten to 26, and it would have said numbers one through 25 don't matter. You're done. I failed the quiz. Decided at that point that I didn't like Ms. Matheson. <laughs> I did learn that day to read all directions before I take a test. I also learned to be cynical and distrust teachers. <laughs> well, not really, but it was the, 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 it brought up something that's in me always, which is why are we doing this? There was a why behind it. Mrs. Matheson was trying to teach us to read the instructions, to follow the directions, right? Why am I doing this? That's a question I am always asking. You give me a set of directions, instructions, you want me to do something, I need to know why. Towards what end? Israel is in the middle of the wilderness. God gives them commands, which we talked about last week, the Ten Commandments and others, Exodus 19, 20, 21, about how they should live with one another and the world around them. But in Exodus 25 and for the, basically the whole rest of the chapter, what we get is a series of instructions on building something. I'm gonna read, reread a couple of the verses here. Chapter 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And then verse eight and nine, and let them make me a sanctuary. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So God instructs them in detail to make this tabernacle, basically a large tent building. It looks like this. Here's a picture of one. So it was this large tent building with this fence around it and a bunch of places for slaughtering an animal, uh, a water basin, and inside uh, of all these things was this special place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, Raiders of the Lost Ark and on which sat the Lord God Almighty. This actual tabernacle, that, that centerpiece up there, would have actually fit on this stage. It wasn't that gigantic, by all means. It's like you know, 15 by 45, or thereabouts, by 15 feet high. But God gives them exact and precise descriptions of what they are supposed to do. Their instructions about how to build the frame what type of wood to use, how to weave together different things, you get instructions on what the priests are supposed to wear. These instructions are detailed instructions. Let me read a few of them for you. This is about the tunic that the priest is supposed to wear. In the style of the ephod, a tunic, you shall make it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen you shall make it. It shall be a square and doubled, a span, its length, and a span, its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle. shall be on the first row. In the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. In the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. You shall make the robe of the ephod of all blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it. He has to, to say, describe to make a hole in it for the head like make a hole for the head. The details are down to the very minute little bit. Everything about what they wear, about every single curtain that was up there, every single piece was described in exact detail. The people of God had to come together and donate everything that they had, and then it took artisans, skilled people that knew how to weave linens, how to dye yarns, how to build things, how to melt gold and turn it into something that overlaid a pole, All these things were a part of the whole people of God coming to build this thing. And the entire final third, essentially, of the book of Exodus is about what this is supposed to look like. There are tons of details. And we should be asking, why? What is God up to? One third of the book of Exodus is about this tabernacle and why. We have talked about it here, that the story of Exodus as we know it the story of Exodus is about delivery from slavery to freedom. God is delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land that he had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But it is not just about delivery from slavery. It is also about becoming the people of God. And so last week, we looked at the covenant that God makes, the laws that he lays before his people. It says, I will be your God. Will you marry me? And then here he lays out instructions for what's called the tabernacle. And we should be asking why? What is God up to in this tabernacle? One of the things that we see, the first thing that we see in the instructions of the tabernacle is God is up to re-creation. There's a lot of echoes of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 that are found in the descriptions of the tabernacle. There are seven days of creation, Seven different times it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, make it this way. The seventh day of creation is the instruction about the Sabbath, right? In the seventh day, the Lord rested. The seventh instruction that God gives to Moses about the tabernacle is about the Sabbath. Then you get the, the precision of every detail and every measurement. Much like how God takes the chaos and brings order and separates things in the Genesis 1 creation account. God sets Adam and Eve in a garden, and all of the, the weavings and the, and the tapestries and the, what they're wearing have images of a garden. There are almonds and pomegranates and trees and flowers all over this building and all over what they're wearing. And it's beautiful by their standards. The beauty of the colors, of the gold, of the purple, of the linens, of the jewels that were worn, evocative of the beauty of creation. This is amazing. God is doing what is basically a recreation because with the people of God here, He is doing something new, He is recreating His people. In Genesis, there was a failure that happens. God says, okay, let's do this again. I walked with you and was present with you and said, fill the earth. You didn't do a good job of it. Now I'm saying, build a sanctuary and I will fill it. One commentator said this, the tabernacle is a microcosm of creation. The world as God intended and a beginning in God's mission to bring creation to reflect his will. So God gives all these instructions about the tabernacle because he is doing something new. He is recreating and starting anew with these people, the people of Israel. And for them, the second thing we see in this tabernacle is that worship is meant to be at the center of their lives. When Moses goes to Pharaoh... He says, he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, right? Speaking from the voice of God, let my people go. Why? That they may worship me, serve me. Depending on the translation in English, it's either worship or serve, but the same idea is there. God doesn't say, let my people go just because slavery is bad, though that's true. Let my people go that they can flourish, though God wanted that as well. Let my people go that they may worship and serve me that they may freely know me as their God. And when they built the tabernacle, it was literally in the center of the encampment. We have another picture here. This is how they were supposed to set up the whole thing. They were supposed to set it in the middle and everyone was supposed to camp around it. Literally, they are living out the, the figurative spiritual nature of what their life is supposed to be. Their whole life centered on Yahweh, on God. And of course, there's a lot in here just for us in our own lives. You will worship something, right? We talk about that here. You will worship something. It's whatever is most important, whatever you easily give yourself to, you will sacrifice for, spend on the things that you love and enjoy most. That's what you worship. That's what I worship. But the question that the Lord asks of us is a question that is very hard for us. It's about, is he Lord or not in our lives? And we're challenged by that in our modern era. And here's why. It's, what if, what if, what if you can't have what you want? Whatever you most want, whatever we most want is what drives us. We will pursue hard whatever it is that drives us, whatever we most want. And our deepest fears are bound up in whatever we most care about. You get most defensive and mean when you think that it is threatened. So whether that is your career or reputation or your money, your, your rights, whatever it is, whatever you, you hold to the most, you'll be most defensive most angry. But the question that God asks us again and again in scripture is, what if what you most want isn't what you most need? Because you've been made for something else. To have God at your center and not something else. If God is truly Lord, if he is truly the center of the encampment of our lives, if, it, if, if the Lord is who we worship, what we serve, what we live for, it will have an effect on our politics. It will have an effect on our money. It will have an effect on what we do with our time, all of our relationships, how we view our own bodies. God's aim is to make a people whose life is centered on him, led by him so that they can know life to the full. To the extent that God is truly the center of our worship, it will affect everything. Even our deepest wants will begin to be conformed to the image of God. And I've found in my own life, to the extent that God is at the center, I live with a lot of peace, because I have the perspective that God is center. And I'm less self-focused. I actually think of others occasionally to the extent that God is central. But when something else comes to the fore, and I care about that most, that's when I begin to worry. That's when I become most guarded and defensive. That's when I'm worried about my needs. And I don't care about yours. God says, build this tabernacle as a recreation so that I can be at the center of your life. And three, because I want to dwell with you. God's desire is to dwell with his people. The word tabernacle in Hebrew comes from a root with three letters, the SH letter, the K, and the N, which is tabernacle. It also means tent, and it also means dwell or live with or reside in. So it's all the same thing. The tabernacle is the dwelling place of God. When God says, I want to dwell with you, it's I want to tabernacle with you. When it said somebody dwelt in a land, it meant they tabernacled or tented in that land. It's all the same thing. And that's why God says at the very beginning, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, that I may tabernacle in their midst, that I may set up a tent. And that's where I live, in their midst. One commentator said the tabernacle was a new paradigm for God's relationship to the people. God took the initiative to live among them in a very specific way. The Lord would not remain distant or unapproachable, but would be present with them. And when we get to the end of the book of Exodus, in chapter 40, We read that they finally finished building the tabernacle. It took a year, it says, in verse 17 of chapter 40, in the first month, in the second year, on the first month, first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected, it was built. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And God did not leave his people. He was present with them in that tabernacle, during the entirety of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And it sets up this this theme that we find from Genesis to Revelation, that God desires to tabernacle, to dwell with his people. We see this as God walked with his people in Eden, and then he comes and is present in the tabernacle. Ultimately, he shows up in Jesus, then in us through the holy spirit and one day when he makes all things new he will dwell with us and there will be no temple think about how that plays out in the garden of eden in the garden of eden the lord god walks in the cool of the day with adam and eve he speaks with them so that when they sin God calls out, Adam, where are you? It's one of the saddest statements in all of, Bi- all of the Bible. For, for some length of time, he and Adam had talked, walked together, spent time together. Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? Before sin, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Again, not just physically, but they were before God and had nothing to hide, so before each other, they had nothing to hide. But sin enters in. And they reject God, choosing to do their own thing, to be their own Lord, their own center. And God drives them out of the garden, east of Eden. And for some time, there is silence and absence. Where is God? He shows up occasionally with Noah, with Abraham, and then 400 years of silence until he comes to Moses in that burning bush and he shows up again. And then when he brings his people out of, Israel, out of Egypt, he says, I am going to tabernacle with you, so build me a tabernacle. And God stays with them, leading them for 40 years in that tabernacle. He was constantly present with them through the conquest in Joshua, Judges, until David and Solomon build a temple right? A a more fixed structure. Same as a tabernacle, a little bit bigger, made with stones and things like that, not made with uh, just skins. There in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, the temple was set up, and God dwelt with his people in that temple. But when they turned from God, God removed himself from them. The temple was destroyed, and for hundreds of years, God seemed to be silent, King Herod comes along, builds a new temple. It's glorious. It's a beautiful building. And by by the first century, the temple was the center place of Israel's life. Jewish life was built around that temple in Jerusalem because they thought, we have a temple. If we have the building, God must be with us, right? If you have the the temple, God is with you. Like a tabernacle, if you have the building, God is there. But they thought he was there only for them. And they were missing some of what God wanted to do through them. And Jesus comes along. And according to the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus, when he comes along, says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is echoing the words of Exodus, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, dwell among them. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle as we have seen God's glory in Jesus. God does something new in Jesus. He shows up in person, incarnate. That's why Jesus says, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And he was not talking about the building that Herod had built. And in Matthew 12, verse six, he says something greater than the temple is here. It's not just a building that I'm gonna dwell in, but I am in your midst. I am present for you. See, from Eden, God walked with his people. Then in the tabernacle and temple, God dwelt in a place. Then he shows up. And he shows up in the person of Jesus to bring people near to God. And on the cross, as Jesus is dying, he's breaking down the barrier between us and God. You know, if you think about it, we figuratively and spiritually were driven from the garden, from the presence of God. But on the cross, Jesus is forsaken. He is driven from the presence of the Father that we, by faith, might come near to him. Jesus undoes that kicking out that happens in the fall. And he says, come. Anybody who's here, anybody who wants, come near to the Father through me. If you feel like an outsider, you don't feel like you have that closeness to God. Dissonance in your own life anxiety, self-loathing, all those things that are part of a spirit of an internal soul that is not at rest. Jesus says, come near to me. I've made a way and you can have access to the Father through me. And if you come to me, repent of your sins and trust in me, I will take up residence. I will tabernacle in you. That's the hope and gift of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost, that God sends his spirit upon the people of God. Everyone who has put their trust in Jesus, the spirit falls on them. And so now we live in the New Testament era, era the, the era of Pentecost, the era after the Holy Spirit has come. And the question is, where is God? And the answer is, God is not in a temple. God is not located in the Garden of Eden. God is not even just local in Galilee like he was during a few years in the first century. God is here in you if your faith is in Christ. The spirit of God is fully present in you, with you, working through you in this world. That whole narrative of God moving and showing up in Eden in the tabernacle, in the temple, in Jesus, then culminates in you. And when we gather together as the church, we are fully alive with the power of the Spirit in us. 1 Corinthians says, you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you. And when we are together, we more fully represent that. So I am made in the image of God and the Spirit of God dwells in me, but by me alone, I'm only representing a certain part of God. Together with you and you and you and you and you, the different giftings, our different ages, our different backgrounds, our callings, that spirit of God dwells in us so that we become an image and reflection of God that by ourselves we can't be. There's a powerful way that God uses that as well. You know, today I've found this more and more is that belonging precedes belief, People will show up in a place like Christ Church Vienna or in a fellowship group on a college campus or in a small group, and they want to belong long before they believe. And part of the draw of that is the Spirit of God moving in our lives. In 1 John, God says, they will know, they will know me because of your love for one another. They will experience my love for them through your love for one another. Now look, we don't all love each other. But the Spirit of God transforms us so that we can love people that we are not like. And we can work together as the people of God. The church is the place where the Spirit of God comes alive. The gathering of any Christians. Two, three, twenty, three hundred, two thousand. And all of it is pointing to the day when God comes and dwells among us in the new creation. The hope of heaven is not just like some distant, disembodied thing. It is that God is going to come and renew all things. And in Revelation 21, he says that he will wipe away every tear, sorrow, suffering, and death because the dwelling place of God will be with man once and for all. That whole redemptive history from the Garden of Eden to the new creation tells us that God intends to tabernacle and dwell with his people. He wants to live with you because he wants you to know him. He wants you to experience him. He wants you to know his presence and his love for you. And not just for you. The presence of God in your life and mine has a calling to it. The tabernacle had a calling for Israel. For Israel, part of their calling was to be God's people, right? In chapter 19, it says, You are my treasured possession, Exodus 19, among all nations. God says, I want you to be my people. You are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Basically, God is saying, I have chosen you, and I'm going to dwell with you. The holy, almighty God is going to be present with his people, and he is in that tabernacle. But they had a calling they were meant to fulfill in that. And we get it in the prophet Isaiah who's critiquing Israel's failure when he says, I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. God chose to take up residence in the people of Israel so that through them the world would know who God is. All these instructions about how they were to worship him and order their lives and the covenant that he made with him and the Ten Commandments and all of these ways that God said, I want you to follow me, was not just for their own well-being. It was so that the world would know who God is. They had a calling that was not just for them, but to reveal to the whole world who the Lord is so that everyone would come to worship God. You and I have the Spirit dwelling in us. And God is in you for you. There's a gift in that. He wants you to know and experience him. The assurance of his love, the hope and assurance of eternity, the power of the Spirit leading and guiding you to live out the life you were meant to live. But God dwells in you not just for you. You know, we are made in the image of God, and part of our calling is to live out his image in this world. We've talked about during this series our identity, our false identity, gospel identity, and kingdom identity, right? Our false identity is the way that we try to make up who we are on our own. And we're constantly trying to live in order to, to make appearances or to look like the smart person or be the fastest one to take the test. And if we're failing or succeeding, we feel good or bad about ourselves, that's our false identity. Our gospel identity is you are loved. God dwells in you. You can be assured that he will never leave you nor forsake you. You are his child. But that has an implicit calling, your kingdom identity, the way that God wants you to impact the world for him. He doesn't just take up residence in you to make you happy, although it is true. He takes up residence in you to impact the world around you. And he has made you as a unique representative of him in this world. The question we are asking this summer is what is God calling you to? To whom does he want you to reach out? And that's part of our calling as a church. Christ Church Vienna, we're trying to figure out our unique calling. How is God revealing himself through us? What is he calling us to in this place right now and in the 10 years to come? And we have to look at what God is already doing. How is the Spirit already at work in this place? It is not incidental that we have an overly large number of high school students given the size of our church. It is not incidental that we have had connections and relationships to Chile and to the immigrant community here. God is doing something there. He's moving It is not incidental that more and more people have said this place feels welcoming and friendly. And people who have been burned by the church have found this to be a hospital for them because of the way that we present the gospel. These are not incidental to what God wants to do through us. You look at how God has worked and you anticipate what God wants to do in the future. But we have to keep looking out. God has called us together, the spirit of God dwelling in us to push us out. You know, at the end of the book of Exodus, we get this narrative that the the cloud of God descends upon the tabernacle, and Israel, whenever the cloud was in the tabernacle, would stay still. For months, years, they wouldn't move. But if the cloud lifted up, they would start packing up their tents, pack up the tabernacle, and they would follow wherever God is going. We're at a place in our church where I believe God is on the move, He wants to lead us somewhere. And I intend to follow him. And I want you to come too. (laughs) So seek with me over the next few weeks. Seek the Lord for yourself. God is resident in you and he wants to use you in this world. And God is present in this place and he wants to use us. What is he up to? Where is he going? How can we follow him? Let's pray. Lord God, you did not just create this world and disappear. You entered it in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of him, we can have access to you and your spirit in our hearts. So, Lord, lead us by your spirit to surrender our false gods, to give up all the things we try to control and own and run on our own, and cause us to follow you wherever you will lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.